Thank you, Peter. Let's pray as we come to God's word. Our Lord, we know that in your light we see light, and so we pray that you would enlighten the eyes of our heart this morning, um, unveiling to us the mysteries of Christ and his word, and we pray that as we receive him, our light might uh, shine out from this place. Um, Would you be made known in Banbury and beyond? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, imagine it's the day of your funeral. I know, cheery thought for a Sunday morning, apologies about that. But people are gathering together after the service, talking and reminiscing about you and your life, perhaps over coffee and cake. What do you imagine they are saying? What would you want them to say? If you're anything like me, you'll probably want them to say how well you'd lived and um, that you'd had a good life. But just think about that for a moment. What is a good life? How do you measure it? Is it measured by what you achieve, the quality of your relationships, whether you're happy in yourself, whether others are happy with you? Is it measured by the length of your life, the way it comes to an end, or the legacy you leave behind? What is a life well-lived? It probably doesn't surprise you to know that philosophers through the ages have asked that very question time and time again. It's always been an essential question. What is a good life? What is the good life? To provide just one example, the Greek philosopher Aristotle, um, his concept of the good life was measured using the term eudaimonia. You meaning being or doing good, daimon, uh, which is to do with your inner person or spirit, and ia is to do with a, a lasting state of being, eudaimonia. For Aristotle, eudaimonia described a life of flourishing, especially in terms of virtue and, and wisdom. And most ancient Greek cultures and societies centered around that concept. And in fact, there were various manuals and codes of conduct written to guide people in the good life, how to live the good life. And so, for instance, in Aristotle's book called Politics, he discusses how communities could function well in different settings, in cities, in villages, and in households. And he divided the management of those households into the the recognized parts of the day, so master and slave, husband and wife, parent and children. Now, why am I telling you all this? Well, because that's precisely the world that Peter was writing into. What Peter writes here, especially in this next section of the letter, running from chapter 2, 11, all the way through to the end of chapter 3, 322, is a Christian presentation of the good life. And what it means for the conduct of Christians in the city in communities, and in households. So in some ways, this would have been very familiar ground to those first century Christians, a mixture of Jews and Gentiles living in the Roman Empire. Because Peter uses the same categories and ideas and terms as Aristotle, who'd influenced the society around them. As we'll see, Peter describes a way of relating to ruling authorities and fellow citizens between slaves and their masters, and between wives and husbands. That was the world he lived in. 
Yet in other ways, as we'll also see over the next few weeks, Peter paints a very surprising and somewhat distinctive picture of the good life. One that would have been radical to ancient ears. Not least because it gives honor to those on the margins of society and to those who didn't have a voice. It contains a unique view of suffering. It discourages taking revenge on those who cause us, harms, uh, cause us harm and, and instead calls us to bless them. And most crucially, it grounds this life, this good life, in the God who is perfect goodness. How does this relate to us? Well, although society may not function in exactly the same way or with exactly the same terms as it did in first century Asia Minor, the principles behind this vision of the good life for the church are not out of date. In fact, as God's holy word, for God's holy people, they still have the power to challenge and change and shape the way we live as Christians within each of our own spheres and, and how we relate to those around us. And so the plan today is to first zoom out and then to zoom in. First, looking at verses 11 and 12, we're going to reflect on the principles for this way of life. Verses 11 and 12 function as a transition, moving us from that rich theology about the nature of salvation and the nature of the church, God's people, that we've been listening to over the last couple of weeks, to putting it into practice at, at the ground level. And then we'll zoom in using verses 13 to 17 to consider specifically our relationship to civil authorities, which is the first in a series of relational spheres Peter focuses on. So first, how to live a good life, or how to live the good life. Now, when I was a youngster, my dad was a hotel manager. And so sometimes we as a family would eat in the hotel restaurant with him. It was a, it was a really nice way to share in his work and to be part of his workplace. And the food was always delicious. But whenever we ate in the hotel restaurant, it wasn't the same as eating at home. Because we were, we were known, and to some extent, we were on show uh, to those around, uh, around us. We were the manager's family. And so my parents would tell us, show respect to the staff and to the guests. Don't mess around and agitate one another at the table. Eat nicely. Speak politely. We had to remember who we were, where we were, and how to behave accordingly. And that same sort of principle is at play here in this passage. Who are we as Christians? Well, we heard that last week, didn't we? Verses 9 and 10 again. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We have a privileged and exclusive identity in Christ. We are his people, members of his household. But where are we? Well, currently we're in exile, scattered throughout the world. Peter calls us alien, aliens and strangers in verse 11. We're God's people, but we're not fully at home. 
So how do we live accordingly? Well, we're to live as members of God's household, not as those who are not. And here, Peter says that involves two things. First, abstaining from things that, are, that oppose God, our sinful desires, all that stands against God, we're actually, which are actually really bad for our souls, says Peter. And second, by doing good. So that's the who, where, and how. But we're also given the why. Um, it's not because it'll necessarily go well for us, this way of life. Sometimes it might, like in um, chapter 3, we'll see later on in verse 1, where an unbelieving husband may be drawn to Christ by the beauty of a wife's Christian character. But more often than not in this book of 1 Peter, he speaks about adverse reactions from others. And chapter 1, verse 12 is the first explicit reference in this letter to hostility towards Christians. That was a, a significant issue in the first century for, for Christians scattered around the Roman Empire. And it continues to be an issue today for um, some in our world, as we'll hear next week. Um, uh, during the World Church Sunday, thinking about those who are persecuted because of their faith. Christians still live in hostile environments where they are discriminated against and threatened with their lives even because of their faith in Jesus Christ. The point is, whether it attracts or repels, we're always called to abstain from sin and to do good because we're members of God's household brought in by his grace. And our lives serve, serve to show off his goodness and glory. So those are the principles. Let's flesh that out a little more. Let's um, take a, a, deep, a deeper dive into this um, and what it means for us. Just think for a moment of all the places that you might spend with uh, people, your friends or family or whoever, who are not Christians. It might be your job, in your class at school, uh, in the pub where you meet with a regular group of friends or at the school gates or even in your very own home? What does it look like for you to live as a member of God's household, as a Christian, in those settings? Is there any difference between you and them? And if so, what? What's your role in that setting? Now, the easy answer would be to say your role is to do evangelism, to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with those who don't currently know and follow him. Now, please don't mishear me. That is obviously a wonderful thing to do. Peter himself will later tell us to always be ready to give an answer for the hope that we have. But Peter's teaching here is broader and fuller and richer than that. It goes beyond our mere words. So notice how Peter, before he speaks about doing or saying anything, speaks about being. To state the obvious, he writes verse 11 before he writes verse 12. Abstaining from sinful desires is an internal thing. It's about who we are. We are the people of God. Those who have tasted that he is good those called from darkness into his wonderful light, recipients of his mercy. We are his children. And so, as obedient children, as Peter previously said in chapter 1, 
don't conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Peter doesn't say do lots of holy things. He says be holy in all you do. Now that's a fine distinction, but it's a really important one. Because you can do and say all kinds of holy things without being holy. I'm sure we can all think of examples of, of people who say the right kind of thing or the right stuff, but by their character and by their actions reveal something altogether different. So whether we're at work or in the pub or at school or at home, we're first called to cultivate and embody who we are in Christ. And it's from that that a good life, including all we say, flows. And you know, beyond individuals, that's also true of churches. In this next section, uh, sorry, not in this next section, in this next season of our church's life, as we seek to get things moving again, it will be incredibly tempting to focus on the pragmatic and the plans rather than the progress in Christ of our people. It will be tempting to make decisions based on what works and what's effective rather than what's good for building up God's people. The truth is, the church can only be effective in its mission and evangelism if it first embodies the gospel it seeks to preach. And so prayerful time and energy put into the building up of our church family, whether that's through discipleship or pastoral care or in our Sunday worship services like this, will make for a much more real and beautiful witness in our community. Our community doesn't need us to be like them. They need us to be the people of God. That's how to live the good life. By consciously and unashamedly being who we are, God's household in the midst of the world around us. And so with the, those principles in mind, let's, let's go from zooming out to zooming in on something more specific. And Peter's going to take us through a, a few different um, places where we enact these principles uh, in different settings over, over the next few weeks. So um, second, how to relate to civil authorities. It's, um, you may know, it's party political conference season in the UK where the various members and leaders of the political parties get together to debate ideas and policies. The Lib Dems met last month online. The Labour Party conference was recently held in Brighton. And just this last week, the Conservatives were in Manchester. And the point of those conferences is to showcase policies and slogans and personalities um, which widely vary between the different political parties. And um, you may or may not know that there are Christians across the spectrum and um, who are involved in, in, in their parties um, and they regularly meet together as Christians to, to pray and support one another um, wherever they stand. Now, all of those Christians in government have a great responsibility to, to govern our nation in a good and upright way. 
So whether we support a, a particular party or, or not, we should pray for them. But the concern here in 1 Peter is not so much with the responsibility of those in government or the rule, that rule over us, as with the responsibility of Christians living under authority as citizens in a foreign land. Let's read again from verse 13. Peter writes, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Live as free men, free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood, that is family, the family of believers. Fear God, honor the king. Did you notice the variation and the distinction between the words Peter uses to instruct how we should relate to those who are in governing authorities and how we should relate to God and his people? How should we relate to God? God is to be feared. Fear God. Now, as Mike Reeves says in his recent book, that's not a gloomy fear marked by anxiety. Rather, it's a right sense of awe and delight in our creator and redeemer. The fear of God is a life-giving thing. Fear God. He's to be honored and uh, submitted to above all because he is God and he is great and he is good. How should we relate to the family of believers? Well, they are to be loved. We are brothers and sisters in Christ, redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus, who are being built together into a temple of God's dwelling. So as Peter said previously, there's no reason for deceit or hypocrisy or envy or slander amongst God's people. How should we relate to those in authority? Well, they are to be respected and honored. Because God, in his providence, has placed us where we are, under the authority of others. To reject their authority is to reject God's authority. But notice, they're not to be feared. Only God is to be feared. In the West, hostility towards the church is increasingly becoming the norm. In the past, it might have been culturally acceptable to be a Christian. Nowadays, you're more likely to be viewed with suspicion. On Thursday, a, a friend of mine was telling me that uh, she'd been um, written an email by someone um, who I don't think she knew but um, very well, but she, my friend uh, stood for some Christian values. And Anyway, she was written this email um, by someone who told her just how harmful her Christian theology was of other people. Harmful. Now, when that or similar things happen around us, the temptation will be either to assimilate or to go along with our culture's values, just going along at the expense of our holiness, perhaps, or to bunker down and close ourselves off and refrain from doing good. But neither of those things are right. That would be to fear human authorities and not God. We're to honor 
and submit to their authority, that are human authorities, seeking to be good citizens, even when we suffer for it, precisely because we are servants of a greater master, of a greater authority. Doing so displays how ultimately we belong to Christ. It magnifies his rule over our nation, our schools, our town, our workplaces, wherever it is that you're under authority. So they're not to be feared. And notice too, showing honor to our governing authorities, whoever they are, doesn't mean we need to love the authorities that God has placed over us. Um, so by that, what I mean is we're not required to show the same affection we have towards one another in the church with the harsh boss in the workplace or the um, parking ticket guy putting something on our windshields or even the members of cabinets we happen to disagree with. Although as it happens, our MP, Victoria Prentice, is a Christian. We're simply to give each what is due to them. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God. Honor the king. So as we close, let me ask some questions that might just bring this home for us. In view of who we are as members of God's household, what will honor and submission to human authorities look like for you? What will it look like for you where you are this time tomorrow morning? Whether that's at work, at school, or whatever. How might this change the way you speak about those in authority? Whether that's your teacher at school, your boss at work, uh, those who run things in our town, or the government of our nation. How can you, in your own context and sphere, be a better citizen? And how can we, as a church, more fully embody the gospel and do good here in Banbury? Those are just some questions to leave us with and to go away thinking about, perhaps today and into the week. How can we live the good life, the good life we have in Christ? Let's pray. Our gracious Lord, we thank you once again for your wonderful grace uh, for making us, your people, a chosen, a precious uh, people to you. Thank you for the precious blood of Christ shed for each one of us. Thank you that you've made us um, living stones on him, the living stone, building us up together on him and in him. Thank you for the privilege of being part of a church family, of being joined together in him. And we pray, Lord our God, that you would make us into more of the people that we are. Please show us how to embody the gospel that we preach and we share with those around us. And we pray that um, in doing that, you would make us an even more beautiful witness. Um, so please be with us uh, today and this week, wherever we um, go to. In Jesus' name, amen.
Well, if we are 